Well, it is so good to see you. It's so good to have the choir leading us in worship uh, behind me. It is a fits into the sermon series, which is a sermon series on good things. For the next few weeks, we'll be looking at the good things that we have as part of our Christian faith, a part of our life, good things that we may take for granted, we may not notice, uh, and we're going to remind ourselves of, of good things we have through our faith. And our passage this morning is just chock full of good things. You can see some sermon notes in the end of your uh, service leaflet. You may want to turn there, and it'd be helpful to have the passage out in front of you. You see right in the middle, the author gives his assessment. Verse 3, this is good. And there are so many good things in this passage. We hear about God's good desire for his people. We hear about God's good man, Christ Jesus. We hear about the good life that you and I are supposed to live. And Interestingly, and very surprisingly, we also learn about the role of a good government. And those are going to be some of the things that we think about this morning. There's a lot of good in this passage, so let's jump right in. This passage tells us about God's good desire. So, uh, look at the end of verse 3 and the beginning of verse 4. This is good, this is pleasing in, in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved. So what's God's desire? His desire is that all people be saved. Now, as you know, the word salvation in the Bible is a very big, kind of capacious, it's a big umbrella word. When the Bible talks about our salvation, it certainly means eternal life. That's where we first may think heaven, hell, God saves us, and we have an eternal home with them. That is great. But of course, the Bible talks about more than just your eternal destiny. When it talks about salvation, it talks about wholeness and health. Here, shalom would be that sort of Hebrew word, shalom, peace and wholeness. Uh, and I think most importantly, when the Bible talks about salvation, what it has in mind is a restoration of relationship between God and man, that those things that have been separated would be brought back together, reunited, uh, man with God, humanity with God. And that's what the Bible means about salvation. Certainly more could be said, but that is God's will. God, what is God's will for you? It is for our, what, is, what does God desire? He desires you. Your salvation, he desires to be with you, for, to, for you to love him as he loves you, to be with him for all eternity. So when we were, um, our last uh, child was in preschool over at First Baptist, and they do this Christmas concert, and uh, at the end of the Christmas concert, they, they sang a song, and the song went something like this, Dear Jesus, it's your birthday, and I have a gift for you. It's something kind of special, even though it's not brand new, no, I didn't wrap it. It's not under the tree. Dear Jesus, it's your birthday, and the gift I have is me. <laughs> right? Maybe not so adorable when a 47-year-old is doing it, but when a 7-year-old, it's just, it's, it, 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 it would just melt your heart. So here's the question. If you had to get Jesus something for Christmas, what would you get him? Right? If you had to get a present for Jeff Bezos, what would you get? Something that Jeff Bezos would say, oh my gosh, uh, this is just what, he has bazillion dollars. God, by the way, is wealthier than Jeff Bezos. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. What do you get God for Christmas where he would say, that is just what I wanted? You'd give him yourself. That's, that's the, the, throughout the Bible, that's exactly what we find. There is more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner repents. It's, it's astounding. It's mind-boggling. This view of the God that we have in the Bible, not just that God knows you, right? That would be something, like God, God who created all things, 
you know, universes, uh, I guess that's kind of comprehensive, <laughs> one universe, uh, galaxies, he created everything, yet he is not only mindful, he also wants you. He desires you and your company. And that's what the passage says. God's greatest desire is to be known by you, to be loved by you, and to be with you for eternity. Wow. So that is God's good desire, which moves us. And the whole passage really is kind of set under this umbrella. We hear God's desire for the salvation of all people. And now we're going to look at some ways that God brings about his desire. God's uh, good man, Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at our role, and we're going to conclude by looking at the role of the state, the government. Okay, so how does God pursue his good desire? Well, that brings us to the good man, Christ Jesus. So uh, God's desire for all people to be saved, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. I want to focus on two important words that we're told. Jesus Christ is a mediator and he is a ransom. Very quickly, each word. Uh, a mediator is someone who brings two uh, parties that are at odds together. So a marriage counselor would be, of course, a mediator. You, know, you say this, she says this, trying to bring two parties together. A lawyer could act as a mediator. Uh, this client wants this, that client bringing people together. Uh, in a moment, you'll hear about our real estate uh, hopes. And we have a real estate attorney or a real estate agent, and we hope that he will function as a mediator. So our hope, our desire, what we've been praying for and working for and giving towards is to have full possession and permanent possession of this building. We expect to hear from our host in October. So that, that all fat is all fact, and the rest of this is just a kind of an illustration to prove a point. What if our host came back and said, we want you know, some exorbitant, just for round numbers, we want $100. We only have one dollar. We, we, we're, we're, we're just separated by a, a chasm. No way that we can get to what they want. They want $100 million, we have one dollar. In that scenario, that real estate agent would act as an attorney or a, a mediator. He would say, look, hosts, can you come down a little bit? Look, uh, Christ the King Church, can you come up a little? Can, can, you, can you meet? in the middle, right? And that's what a mediator does. Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man. And there is a great gap that exists between God and humanity. There's, you know, <laughs> I said convergence, our host may want 100 bucks, we want, have $1 to offer. That's nothing compared to the gap that exists between God and man. God is holy, he is good, he is righteous, we are not. There's a great gulf between God and man. Which brings us to the second point. Jesus is the mediator, but also he's a compensator. So back to my analogy. Hosts want 100 bucks, we only have $1. No way. What if we just had an exceptional real estate agent who said, look, <laughs> no way you guys are going to get to where you need to go, but I'll tell you what. I'll just chip in a little bit. More than I'll chip in a little bit, I'll chip in 99 bucks to get you to where you ought to be. In that case, that real estate agent would not only be a mediator, he'd be what? He'd be a compensator. He's a mediator between two parties and he's a compensator for another. Jesus Christ is the ransom. He's a mediator between God and man. He is the compensator for God to man. 
He gives his life as a ransom for all. He pays our debt on the cross so that what? Two who are at odds can once again be made whole. He is, he is the mediator and then he is the compensator paying the debt, not his own. And friends, this is another good thing. This is the good news that we have a debt that could not be filled and he had a love that would not be denied. So that culminates in the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, to be a ransom for you and for all. Why? So that God's good desires might be fulfilled. The good news of how God fulfills his good desire. Which brings us to our role. I want us to look that because, again, this whole passage is set under the heading of God's desire for all people to be saved. And he allows that, he enables that by the gift of his son, but you and I have a role to play. And you see this in verse, uh, the end of verse 2, that we may live godly and dignified lives, right? And a godly and dignified life is, is a life that bears witness, right? You and God makes, there's all sorts of ways the church uh, proclaims the good news of God. We send out preachers, we send out missionaries, what we're doing here from this pulpit. But there's a responsibility for all people to bear witness to the good news that Jesus Christ is both our mediator and our compensator. And that is through a life that is marked by godliness and dignity. And again, I just want to focus on those two words, unpack them just a little bit. A godly life and a dignified life is one that bears witness to Christ Jesus so that all people might be saved. Let's think about those two terms. A godly life, another translation would be piety, a pious life. And a pious life is oriented towards God. So the pious person, they pray, they fast, they do religious things, right? Now, a dignified life is a life that's respected by others. So you're, you're respected uh, by your neighbors, by, uh, by community. So one is sort of pointed vertically. A pious life is lived before God, and a dignified life is in reference to people around you. There is a, uh, a joke that's not particularly funny, but it was a part of my... Uh, um, I learned it when I was a little kid. It kind of makes denominational stereotypes. And the, and the joke went something like this. If you want to study the Bible, study the Bible with the Presbyterians. If you want to pray, go pray with the Baptists. But if you want to have a party, party with the Anglicans. Bad joke. But it's playing on a stereotype because I grew up in the Episcopal Church, now the Anglican Church, and we thought of ourselves as kind of you know, dignified, respectable. We like choirs, we like fancy robes, we like poetry, uh, we have more king or more presidents than any other, like dignified, like we, we, we think, yeah, style, we've got style. What about piety, or how are you on piety? Well, not so great on piety. If you wanna to go to, you know, if you wanna learn a Bible study or prayer, go to some other denominations. They do that well, but we have style, right? Here, you have both. The godly life and the dignified life. The life that is approved by God and the life that is approved by, usually you and I think the more pious you get, the less respectable you, be, you become, right? And the more respectable you become, the less pious you become. But not in this passage. It reminds me of 
Well, reminds me of Jesus. The one thing we're told about his childhood is that he grew in favor with God and man, not God or man. And that's the life that's lived in uh, observable to all. And as it is lived, it bears witness to Christ Jesus so that all might be saved. Right? So you and I have a part to play in uh, carrying on God's desires that all might be saved. So that brings us to our third, our fourth and final point. And it involves the role of the state. And you'll note that our passage started, started on a somewhat odd note. First of all, I urge supplications and prayers and thanksgiving for kings and all in authority. Huh, that's sort of strange. But here's the question to ask. What is the best environment What's the best kind of civil environment for you that would enable you and me to live a godly and dignified life, right? The answer is one that's marked by peace and quiet. The environment of peace and quiet, I'm quoting from a commentator who said it very well, the environment of peace and quiet is the ideal set of social circumstances in which Christians might give unfettered expression to their faith through observable living. Make sense? In other words, go to other parts of the world and their civic society is not not marked by peace and quiet. Christians still have to be godly and dignified. It's just harder. I quote some examples, some, cite some examples. Mosul, 2017, 2014, when ISIS was on the rise, they declared the church, or the city of Mosul, free of Christians. Why? Because of the constant haranguing threat and danger. Yeah, Christians, regardless of where they are, still have the same obligations, but this passage is saying, let's not be blind to the fact that, the, the, that an environment of peace and quiet Domestic tranquility, as we say in our preamble to our Constitution. Domestic tranquility is the best environment that would allow you and me to live a godly and dignified life. Every Sunday we pray for our nation. Right? We'll pray for Joseph, our president, for all in service and public and all in authority and public service. Why? Why do we pray for our nation? And we're simply just saying, God bless America. There's nothing wrong with praying, God bless America. Are we, but is that an, an end in itself? No. We are not praying for domestic tranquility so that we could go watch more football. Right? The purpose of domestic tranquility is not to be fat and happy. The purpose of domestic tranquility is to allow for the mission of the people of God that they may live godly, righteous, and sober lives, and thereby bear witness to Christ, and thereby draw all people to a saving knowledge of him. So, a lot of good things in this passage. Let me summarize. Let me summarize as we look just verse by verse. Pray for kings. For us, pray for president. Pray for all in public authority. I hope you do. Why should you do that? So that we might live in peace and quiet. Why do we want peace and quiet? Because peace and quiet is the best environment in which we might live a godly and dignified life. Why should we strive to live a godly and dignified life? 
because lives of godliness and dignity bear witness to Jesus Christ. Why should we bear witness to Jesus Christ? Because he is the one mediator between God and man. And through knowledge of him, all people are saved. And why is it important that all people be saved? Because this is God's good desire. That you and I would spend eternity with him, loving him, adoring him, worshiping him, enjoying his presence forever. This is his good desire. And this is a good thing. Please rise.